Well, if you're a guest with us, welcome. I'm Mark, one of the pastors. We've been making our way for most of 2016 through the gospel according to Matthew, and we've been taking it chapter by chapter, and this morning we find ourselves in perhaps the holiest of all chapters in the Bible where we witness the crucifixion of the Son of God in Matthew chapter 27. And, you know, as I was thinking about this this week, I can really think of no more fitting passage to preach on the Sunday before Thanksgiving than the chapter we're considering this morning. Because if there's anything in all the world that should produce eternal gratitude in the hearts of the people of God, it's the agonizing crucifixion of the Son of God. Now, to some of you, that may sound a little strange. But I hope that by the end of this sermon, you'll understand why. The Apostle Paul writes, he wrote two letters that we have in our Bible um, to the Corinthian church. And in the second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 9, verse 15, Paul writes this, this seemingly passing phrase. It says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Charles Spurgeon began his sermon on that passage with the following words. If you will read at home the chapter from which our text is taken, you will find that Paul was stirring up the Corinthians to an act of liberality. He boasted of what they would do, but he had just a little fear that they might fall behind and not quite come up to what he had promised on their behalf. He stirred them up to liberal giving, telling them that they who sowed liberally should reap liberally and that they who sowed sparingly would reap sparingly. Once upon that theme of giving, the apostle could not help speaking of another gift. He saw a track just off the main road, and he felt that it led him straight away to his God and to his Savior. And so while the ink was yet flowing in his pen, he began to write about it as though he would say, I'm not thinking now, my brethren, so much of your gifts as I am of another gift, not so much of your gifts to the Lord's poor people as of the Lord's great gift to you, his poor people. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And it's from that text that I take the title of my sermon this morning. Thankful for his inexpressible gift, which we see played out most fully here in the chapter before us in Matthew 27. And I have to tell you that I approach Matthew 27 and have approached it this whole week with a lot of fear and trepidation. One writer said, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. End quote. So really, a sermon on this text is almost a sin against this text. It's what I feel. And so I want us to pray together that the Lord would draw near to us this morning as this weak, sinful man tries to describe something of the glory and put in human language the suffering of the sinless one. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in need of, in a sense, we're always in need of your help as we open your word together as a, as a church family but even more so this morning as we approach the Holy of Holies, this moment in which all history hung 
in which all of your redemptive purposes from eternity past up to that very moment had hinged. And you were accomplishing something in your son for us and for our salvation that is literally inexpressible and unspeakable in its magnitude and wonder. And so as we come this morning, we plead for help from the Holy Spirit, that it wouldn't just be me preaching Jesus because that would not amount to anything. But if your spirit would preach Jesus to us from your word this morning, then we will be greatly helped. And so we pray, Spirit, that you who were sent to reveal to us the Son would do so again this morning. In his agony for us, as he hung on the cross, shamed, made a curse for us, that we might be brought into the family, that we might be adopted, that we might be forgiven and rescued and redeemed and ransomed. Lord Jesus, we pray to you and thank you that you are not on the cross anymore. Thank you that you are alive and well today. And you have been. And this six hours that we're considering of your life this morning was, oh, an eternity-changing episode, but was not what you're experiencing right now. You are right now resurrected at the right hand of God in glory, drawing all people to yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the preaching of the gospel as it goes forward in Ireland and around the world and even in our own country. And we know that one day, even as right now you sit at the right hand of the Father, that you will return and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of your Father and yourself. And we thank you that that day is coming now and it is nearer now than when we first believed, that it's coming soon. And we pray that it would come soon and that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your people long for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So just to catch us up to this chapter, by this point, Jesus has been in the public eye for two and a half, close to three years, the years of his public ministry. And it has not taken him long over the course of those several years to run foul of the religious and political authorities of his day. They resent his popularity, and they are suspicious of his motives. They wonder if the rising number of followers that he has could eventually turn into an insurrection or some form of rebellion against the Roman Empire. And so Jesus has to be crushed. So they provide a kangaroo court. They find Jesus guilty of treason. They manage to secure the sanction of the Roman governor to do it. And then they have him executed by crucifixion. Here's my outline this morning. Number one, before the death of Jesus. Verses 1 through 31. We're going to look at the episodes that transpired to lead up to his crucifixion. And we're going to learn the lesson of why we need Jesus to begin with. Number two, during the death of Jesus. Verses 32 through 54, which are the verses that our brother and deacon Keith read for us. And the lesson will be what Jesus did for us. And then number three, after the death of Jesus, verses 55 through 66. And the lesson will be how we should respond to him. So why we need him, what he did, and how we should respond. Let's move first to number one. Before the death of Jesus, why we need him. Well, there's three main characters or we could say groups of characters. There's two main characters and then a group that are at work here before the death of Jesus to bring it about. 
We heard last week the first character we're going to consider in the first ten verses is Judas. Because we see the end of his life take place in what is just an unspeakable tragedy in the first ten verses. I won't go into all the details that Pastor Jonathan went through last week in walking us through the life of Judas and what led up to him bringing his own death about. But we will see here what happens to a person who is a professed disciple of Jesus who waits too long to repent. So let's read the first 10 verses of Matthew 27 together. When morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by the betraying of innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers, and therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. End quote. J.C. Ryle, old preacher in England in the 1800s, wrote the following about this account, which I think is worth quoting at length, And his point is what we see in the life of Judas is a model of what happens when we try to repent too late. Ryle says, it's a common saying, it's never too late to repent. The saying no doubt is true if repentance be true, but unhappily late repentance is often not genuine. It is possible for a man to feel his sins and be sorry for them, to be under strong conviction of guilt and express deep remorse, to be pierced in conscience and exhibit much distress of mind, and yet for all this, not repent with his heart. Present danger or the fear of death may account for all his feelings, and the Holy Spirit may have done no work whatever in his soul. Let us beware of thinking we can repent later. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Let us put off nothing that concerns our souls and above all, not put off repentance under the vain idea that it is a thing in our own power. This is tragic. This is an absolute tragedy that occurs right before the death of Jesus. No doubt Jesus knowing that this was going to happen to Judas but no doubt still loving Judas, but recognizing that even as Jesus would have known the very moment that Judas went out and committed suicide, as Jesus himself is heading to the cross. And here we see what happens to a man who, instead of being honest before Jesus, instead of owning up to his sin before Jesus, puts it off and puts it off 
and continue, as we saw last week, to be given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and doesn't do it. And then the end of his life, he's not even able to do so anymore. And so this is a sober warning for us this morning. It's a sober warning to take sin seriously before Jesus. It's a sober warning to bring our sin to Jesus. That is a much, much healthier thing to do rather than conceal sin or hide it from Jesus or try to keep it away from him or try to do our own thing instead of obeying him. It reminds us the power that money has over a person in such a way that we have more money than Judas would have ever seen. And we need to be aware that it's impossible to serve both God and mammon. And so we need to be take seriously our relationship to money. Jesus spoke about it more than any other thing that he spoke about in his entire ministry. And so let us read Judas and see his example and observe from his example and take from his example what we're supposed to learn, which is, Lord, let nothing Nothing be kept between me and you. Not money, not myself, not my own selfish interest, nothing. And do not, anyone here this morning, and I'll say more about this at the end of the sermon. If you are here this morning and you are not presently in a vital, connected, ongoing communion relationship with Jesus Christ, now is the day to begin that relationship. Not a year from now, not three years from now. Not ten years from now. You will not have any greater desire for Christ then. And to presume such is to put yourself in the camp of Judas. So don't do that. Don't leave here thinking that. That, oh, my my desires for Christ will increase as I grow older. No, that's not the case. And children, you don't have to wait until you're older to get right with Christ. Jesus invited children in his own day and he invites children in this day, even you here this morning through his word to come to him as you are not waiting. You know, our great desire for you as pastors, and I know your parents great desire for you is to grow up and have an incredibly boring testimony. That's our desire is that that you would be able to stand in front of the church one day as a eight, nine, 10, 11 year old boy or girl, and be able to say, I've never known a moment of my life where I haven't wanted to belong to Jesus. And this morning, I want to publicly declare that I belong to him. That's not a boring testimony. That's a miracle. That's an act of God's sovereign grace that he would place you in a Christian family, in a Christian home where you would grow up and never not have a day where you didn't hear the name of Jesus. That is an amazing story of God's grace. And we pray that it would be the testimony of dozens of you. Second main character in this story before we get to the death of Jesus is Pilate. So let's read verse 11 through verse 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? 
But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to him, Which of the two of you do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. What has Jesus done to be so hated? He wasn't a thief. He wasn't a murderer. Unlike Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist and a real threat to Rome, the Roman Empire, which is why he was locked up to begin with. But Jesus was none of those things. All he did was love people and tell them the truth. According to Acts for chapter 10, verse 38, he was one who, quote, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. End quote. He was innocent of any sin or transgression against the law of God or the law of men. And yet the Jews hated him and never rested until he was hanging on a cross. They hated him because he told them the truth. They hated him because he testified their works were evil. They hated him because they lived in darkness And he was shining light. In a word, they hated Christ because he was righteous and they were wicked. Because he was holy and they were unholy. Because he testified against their sin and they were determined to keep their sins and not let them go. Bottom line. So let's observe this. Contrary to our popular cultural narrative that we are 100% bundles of walking goodness. We see here a portrait of real human nature. This is real. There are few things that are so little believed and realized by people today as how profoundly wicked and corrupt we are by nature. We imagine that if we saw a perfect person, that we would love them and admire them. But brothers and sisters, we forget that when we had a really perfect man among us walking on the earth, he was hated and put to death. That single fact goes far to prove the truth that unconverted men would kill God if they could get to him. Because that's what they did. Mm -hmm. 
Let us not think that we are any different by nature. We would kill Jesus. We would make sure that he was put away. You see what's going on here. They would rather have a real threat to their public safety released back into their midst in the form of a person named Barabbas than the king of glory who went about doing good, speaking truth, and exercising love. And in the face of all news to the contrary, that he is innocent, that he is not worthy of death, we would nevertheless cry out, let him be crucified. We do not want the innocent son of God among us. We would rather him die than live here. Are you beginning to see exactly why we need him to die on the cross? From Judas' example to Pilate's example and the example of the crowd. Well, here's a third example. The soldiers. The soldiers. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Terrible thing to say. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And then they had mocked him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Now it's time for the frat boys to have some fun. It's time for the soldiers to get their kicks. And so these are tough guys. They have to go around slapping people around. And so they're going to mock Jesus. They're going to bring him into the governor's headquarters. They're going to gather the whole battalion right there. And they're going to start laying into this guy. Keep in mind, he's been scourged, which is cat of nine tails, glass, shards of bone, whipped, ripped through his back and flesh. He's bleeding already. And now they're going to mock him a little bit. They strip him. They put the scarlet robe on him pretending he's some sort of great king, put a crown of thorns on him as a way to mock his kingly crown. They put a reed in his right hand as though that's some sort of important symbol of power. and It's a scepter. So here we have the Son of God, the King of the universe, the one who made all things by the word of his power, the one who was in the beginning with the Father, through whom all things are made and for whom they exist, before a gang of thugs being stripped with a robe, a reed in his hand, and a crown of thorns on his head, 
being mocked by a Roman battalion. And not just being mocked. Notice what Matthew writes. Being spit on. Being taking the reed that he has in his hand. He's already hurt and hitting him over the head with it. And beating him. And then stripping him of his robe again. Again, totally naked in front of them. Humiliated. And then put his own clothes back on him and lead him away to be crucified. Brothers and sisters, we are the soldiers. We are the soldiers. I am a soldier by nature. This is who we are. Let us not just think this is something that they are. This is us. This is a portrait of us. See, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. This is what Horatius Bonar wrote, famous hymn writer in the 1800s. When he's reflecting on this account about the mocking of the Son of God by the soldiers, he puts himself right there in the middle of that battalion with them. And he writes the following words. It says, I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Across, around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. That's us. We have to realize, I'm Judas. I'm the traitor. I'm Pilate. I'm the cowardly manipulative, gutless person who would rather see Christ killed than defend him. I'm the soldier. I'm the mocker. See, the only person who is prepared to share, only the person who is prepared to share his own guilt of the cross may claim his share in the grace of the cross. Unless we're ready to say, yes, guilty, I crucified the Son of God. Until we get there and say that, we will not be able to partake in the glorious results of that cross. So if you are here this morning and you say, yes, that's me, that's why I need Jesus. I am Pilate. I am Judas. I am the soldiers. I'm the crowd. I would say, let him be crucified, then I've got good news for you. And let's turn to some of that good news now. Point number two, during the death of Jesus, what he did to pay for our sin. Now, we can hardly imagine the shame our Lord has already endured up to this point. But as John Calvin comments, Christ's willingness to undergo such physical, emotional, and spiritual pain proves one thing, how deeply he loves us. Listen to what Calvin says. Here is brightly displayed the inconceivable mercy of God towards us in being his only begotten son so low, bringing his only begotten son so low on our account. This was also proof which Christ gave of his astonishing love toward us that there was no shame, disgrace, or humiliation. He refused to submit for our salvation. You know, when Jesus was headed to the cross and he'd already endured all this, 
in his own spirit, in his own soul, in his own heart. He's saying, for the honor of God and the salvation of my people, I will endure everything. For the honor of God and the salvation of my people. So we can look at the details of our Lord's sufferings. We're not going to reread what we've already read here. But we can look at the, de- the details of our Lord's suffering. And let's remember that as we look at them, we, we look at them on two levels. There's physical suffering and there's spiritual suffering. And they're both happening simultaneously. What do I mean? We'll take a look at each of them individually in a moment. But let me, let me explain how I hold these things together. See, on a human level, Jesus was given up to the priests and he was given over to Pilate who gave him over to the soldiers who crucified him. But on the divine level, the Father gave him up. And he gave himself up to die for us. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Those soldiers did that because Christ allowed them to do that. Pilate did that because Christ allowed Pilate to do that. Judas did that because Jesus permitted it. End of story. End of story. Peter helps us understand how to hold these two truths together of the human level and the divine level as we face the cross. When he writes in, or when, when, he, when it's recorded in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verse 23, that where Peter declares to them on the day of Pentecost that this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by the predetermined plan of God. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 28... He says that wicked men were the ones who put him to death. So which is it? Yes, it's both. God is using the instrumentality of human wickedness to bring about the death of his son for us and for our salvation. So Jesus' death is simultaneously the plan of God and the wickedness of men. So as we face the cross, then we can say to ourselves both, I did it. My sins nailed him there, and he did it. His love took him there. So let's look, first of all, at the physical sufferings at the hands of men. The pain of the cross is so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it. Ever heard of the word excruciating? Excruciating? It has the word crush in the middle of it. Crucifixion. The person that was crucified remember, was laid on his back on a piece of timber with a cross piece nailed to it near one end. And his hands were spread out on the cross piece and nails were driven through likely his wrists where hundreds and thousands of nerve endings are. And they were nailed, each fastened to the wood. And his feet in like manner were then nailed to the upright part of the cross. And then the body, having been secured both at the hands or the wrists and the feet, would have been raised up and firmly dropped into a large hole in the ground. And there the crucified person would hang as an unhappy sufferer until pain and exhaustion brought them to their end. And it was not a sudden death. It was a long death. There was no vital part of him that was injured which would necessitate a quick death. It was going to be a slow, agonizing, excruciating agony from the hands of his feet, or from the hands all the way down to his feet, and he would be completely unable to move. 
having to lift himself up to catch a breath any time he needed to breathe. And just to merely lift himself up would require him to trigger those nerve endings in his hands, which would probably not even bring about a breath, but a scream, which would necessitate more breath. It was an absolutely humiliating, agonizing, excruciating way to die. And such was the death that Jesus died for us. For six long hours, he hung there before a gazing crowd, and he probably did not have that little white loincloth. He was naked, completely naked, in front of a crowd of people who were not by and large crying over what was happening, but lending their amen to it. So he hung there before a gazing crowd, naked, bleeding, his head pierced with thorns, his back lacerated with scourging, his hands and feet torn with nails, and mocked and reviled by his cruel enemies till the very last breath. And that's just his physical suffering. His spiritual suffering at the hands of God is even greater. We read the words, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that dreadful moment, the deepest stroke that pierced him happened. We sing it in a hymn often, right? The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that capital J justice gave, which is God himself. And don't, don't, don't misinterpret this. Jesus is not crying out, why have you forsaken me as some sort of act of self-pity. He's not crying out to God like, oh God, if you love me, this would never happen to me. That's not what this cry of forsakenness is all about. This cry of forsakenness is a conscious awareness deep down in his soul that he has become sin. He has become sin. And he has been cast out of the presence of God. At that dreadful moment, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him to the uttermost. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And put him to grief. Isaiah 53 verse 10. So why did he do all this? Why did he cry it out? For us and for our salvation. We are told that Christ in 1 Peter 2.22. Bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That 1 Peter 3.18. He suffered for sin. The just for the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3.13, he was made a curse for us. Hebrews 9.28, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the inequity of us all. He was scourged so that through his stripes we might be healed. He was innocently condemned so that we might be acquitted, though guilty. He wore the crown of thorns so that we might wear the crown of glory. He was stripped of his clothing so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. He was mocked and reviled so that we would be honored and blessed. He was despised and forsaken that we might be loved and accepted. He refused to save himself so that he would save us. 
He died the most painful and disgraceful of death so that we might die and yet live forever and be exalted to the highest glory. That is our Jesus. And did it work? You better believe it worked. That temple veil was ripped from top to bottom. And it was this, if God said, world, welcome in. Now you have access to my immediate presence. The rending of the veil proclaimed the opening of the way of salvation to all mankind. All were now to be invited and in fact commanded to draw near to God with boldness and approach him with confidence by faith in Jesus. A door was thrown open and a way of life was set before the whole world. And by virtue of his atoning death, his people's sins are forgiven and they are granted direct access into God's holy presence. So by the rending of this veil, God demonstrates that through Christ's coming and through Christ's death, the people of God are now ushered into the most intimate, imaginable fellowship with God possible. And that's what happened. It worked. The Son of God, the death of Christ, six hours hanging on a tree under the wrath of God for us, for our sin, all the physical and emotional pain and suffering that accompanied it, resulting in a cry of it is finished and a tearing of the veil and a welcome from God the Father. And it worked. And now we can go, brothers and sisters, to anyone on the face of this planet and look at them and say, the Son of God was broken for you. The body of Christ was broken for you. The, the blood of God was sh- the blood of the Son of God was shed for you, that you might be redeemed, restored, forgiven, and accepted into His family forever and ever. Aren't you glad? <laughs> and that's that's the amazing death of our Savior for us. So let's talk then briefly the last few minutes here how we should respond. After his death, after the death of Jesus, verses 55 to 66, how we should respond to them. I've got three from the passage and I'm going to close with two from Charles Spurgeon because I got to get him in again because he preaches better than I do. So here's the three from the passage. What how we how we should respond to this love. How should we respond when we gaze again this morning at the death of our savior for us? Here's the first one. Faithfulness to him. Faithfulness to him. Look at our sisters. Here are our sisters. We're going to see them one day, and they're here. Verse 55. There were also many women there. This is after the crucifixion. There were many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. James and Joseph are Jesus' brothers. So that's, that's his mom. Jesus' mom, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Don't you love these women? <laughs> you know, it, it's often been said, you know, and this is, if you travel, if you travel around the, uh, you know, the United, if you look in churches and you look in, in uh, oftentimes it's, it's the quiet women who are the most faithful people to Jesus that you could ever possibly meet. I've met a number of them in my own short life. How many faithful, quiet women do you know that are faithful to Jesus? These are, these, are, these are some of his trophies. 
And we see some, the, the first people that Matthew mentions after the death of Jesus who were on his team are these women. Faithful to stick with him even when things are at their most bleak. They're not going anywhere. And brothers and sisters, this is not just for them. This is something we learn too. You know, following Jesus, as we heard about in Sunday school this morning, is not going to be a cakewalk. We got a cross to carry too. Jesus said, anyone who wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For the one who saves his life, we want to save our lives, right? Well, we're going to have to lose them. The one who loses their life for his, for his sake and for Jesus' sake and the gospels will find it. So we have to, we have a cross to bear too. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. We got a hard road ahead of us. Romans 8 starts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 ends. We can do nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ, but everything in between that's a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering. Are you going to stick with Jesus and be faithful to him when things are at their most bleak and dark and you don't even look like things have any hope? This is what the cross teaches us, that we're going to respond to him. Jesus, if you're going to go all the way for us, I'm all in for you. I will go all the way for you. I will, mean, I will need your grace all the way. It won't be because I'm somehow spiritually strong and able to do this. No, these women are weak and they're hurting. They're hurting. They're not right up next to the cross. They're at a little bit of a distance. They're keeping an eye on things. But they are not leaving the side of Jesus. They've ministered to him for so long, they're not about to drop that ministry when he's at his most needy. And they continue to be faithful to press in and follow him. And we must be the same. We must be faithful to him, to stick with him, even when things are at their darkest. Number two, devotion. Devotion to him. Notice our brother Joseph. Verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Let, let, let's learn something here. Rich men can enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> All right? So lest we think money is somehow in and of itself evil. It isn't. Joseph was a rich man. And he's a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. A faithful disciple. Because he's not eaten up and controlled by his riches. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Verse 58. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. This is his This is expensive. This is Joseph's tomb, which means he's not going to be able to lend it out anymore. He's not going to be able to use it. This is he's giving this to Jesus. Laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So here we see a brother. So we had some women show up. Now we've got a man showing up. And notice the unselfish, bold devotion of Joseph. I love his boldness. I love that he's willing to go right to Pilate, who is no doubt 
still struggling with this whole thing. But he doesn't have any fear of Pilate. He doesn't have any fear of identifying with Jesus. He goes right into Pilate and says, I'd like his body. I want to bury the man. And Pilate says, yeah, you can have him. And then you notice his unselfishness. He's just giving away what he has to Christ and lending it for the master's use. Jesus is placed in the rich man's very grave and witnesses and, 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 their, and Mary and Mary Magdalene are there looking and just witnessing this unselfish devotion of this man. That he would do this. And if, he was bar- if Jesus was buried as a criminal, which he was, then the law forbade the owner of the tomb to use it again. And so he's counting the cost. Like, I don't need this tomb. This belongs to Jesus. And so the unselfishness, the devotion of Joseph is just beautiful. Third, trust. Trust. Notice verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, Man, imposter. While he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So I'd just like to say to the guards of the tomb this day, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Put as many guards as you need to. He's coming out in three days. So God will have. Here's where where your trust needs to lie, believer. God will have the last word and he will use even the wicked deeds of men to accomplish his good purposes for his people. The very things that have seemed most unfavorable to God's people have often turned out for their greatest benefit. What harm, think about this, what harm did the persecution of Stephen in the book of Acts bring about? The death of Stephen. Oh, you mean when the disciples were scattered as a result of it and they started preaching the gospel and churches got planted? What about the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul? What harm did that do? Oh, so he's not able to go out and preach the gospel, but he is able to write inspired scripture in prison that will be preserved by the Holy Spirit and carried down to save multitudes of millions of people. What does the persecution of the people of God do to this day? It becomes the seed of the church. Christians happen. People become Christians when Christians get persecuted. That's what happens. It drives those Christians deeper to prayer, deeper to holiness, deeper to the throne of grace, deeper to the Bible. And if they die, their blood becomes the seed of the church. There's no way any earthly person, any earthly government, any earthly state, community, whatever, is going to snuff out the kingdom of God. Let us be patient then in the days of trouble and darkness and look forward. The very things which seem now so much to us, perplex us, confuse us, are working together for the glory of God and the good of his church. We only see a tenth of it now. Yet in a little little while, we'll see it all 100%. And we, we shall then discover that all the persecution that the church endures, all the struggle, all the weakness, all the sin that we endure was now like the seal and the guard, only going to result in God's glory. Don Carson says, With the dawn, 
All the efforts to eliminate Jesus Messiah from the stage of redemptive history are held up for heavenly derision in the irresistible triumph of the resurrection. Two more, then we're done. And these are going to be the words of Charles Spurgeon. I've got two more ways to respond. And this is quoting from his sermon that I quoted at the beginning of my sermon. So this is his sermon about God's unspeakable gift to us. And he encourages us to respond to God's unspeakable gift in two ways. And one way is for, I want to speak to anyone, anyone in here this morning who is, who is not yet a Christian. And I want to talk to you about that. And then secondly, I want to talk, I want to make an application to us from the words of Spurgeon about our Thanksgiving holiday that's coming up this Thursday and how we can bring Jesus into that and how we ought to and what we ought to do even in our worship services as a result of that. So here's, here's the, the fourth way to respond and that is to receive him, to receive the gift. Here's what Spurgeon says. How often you hear people speak about Christ and his salvation as though they were the reward of merit, as though we did something by which to win his divine favor. You know that there are two things to make a gift. There cannot be a gift without, first of all, one to give it and then another to receive it. So my question for you is, have you received Christ? It is essential to make him a gift to you that you should accept him. You may receive Christ oh so freely. If salvation were to be bought, if it were to be earned, woe would be unto you. But being a gift, nothing is more free. The poorest man in the world may accept a gift. A trembling hand may receive a gift. He that's a thief and a robber, yes, a murderer, doomed to die, may accept a gift if it does not come by merit or by way of reward, but entirely of the generosity of the giver. Oh, what a glorious thing it is that you and I and all of us may receive God's unspeakable gift to us in Jesus Christ. And may you receive him this morning. That's why this text is in the Bible. That you would read it, say, I did that. He did that for me. I receive it. I want him. I want to follow him with my life. And then believer, thankfulness should be our response to this. Here's what Spurgeon says again. Dear friends, praising God is never out of season and never out of place. You know that some of us who profess to be Christians are the most orderly and proper people in all the world. That is to say, we never intrude our religion upon other people. We can see a people crying out, hallelujah, in the service, do we? We're so dreadfully proper. Besides that, we are dreadfully cold as well. Perhaps we should speak about Christ very imprudently and do some very rash things if we loved him better. But we love him so little that we become wonderfully prudent and wonderfully proper. And we in the world jog on together as if there were no difference between us. May every Christian here find some way of thanking God for his unspeakable gift. The more the world curses, the more let us bless. We are to express our thanks as well as to feel grateful. And may we do that now and may we do that throughout this week. And may we do that on Thursday and every Lord's Day we gather from here on out until Jesus comes back. Let's stand together. We'll pray. Worship team, come forward. Father, how we thank you for your unspeakable gift, your inexpressible gift. Help us now to express our thanks for this gift in some way commensurate with its worthiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.